Hi everyone, this is Michael Frazes and you're listening to episode 5 of Frazes Capital Podcast. The following conversation was recorded with Mario Emanuel and we discussed the continued market rally and US tech. I hope you enjoy. Hey Michael, thanks. How are you? Good. The rally continued this week. I uh, did. It's been pretty strong and it's again, it's, uh, it's kind of been focused on all the sectors that sold off the most. So China is obviously in the best performing market and a lot of the tech stocks have absolutely ripped as well. It's almost what you'd predict according to kind of how markets generally work. Usually things that are most oversold bounce back the hardest. Uh, and there's definitely, I mean, you can always feel like the amount of people that are betting against the market uh, and that position has, you know, obviously had to be reversed. Uh, it's, still, it's still been a, a strange rally because people have still been selling, certainly in terms of, you know, ETF withdrawals and things like that. Yeah. Definitely a lot of signs of people pulling money out of the market. It's just been vastly outweighed by corporates buying back stock, basically. I know you mentioned that in the note, which I guess for people, like how, how big an impact do you think that's having on, on some of these businesses? Well, it's kind of interesting that all the big sell-offs often occur during blackout windows. So US companies report every three months and there's a period where those that you know, are about to report can't actually buy back any shares because they have material updates. So October coincided with one of those. And when that ended in kind of the end of January, that did seem to add a lot of fuel to the rally. So you can kind of buy back some of those things. You can actually see who, exactly who's been buying and selling. It's all publicly disclosed. So if you pair that up with, you know, the redemptions from ETFs and active managers, you can see that, you know, it's a larger in magnitude. But of course, you don't actually need, it's probably a misconception that you need people to sell for something to go up or down. Like me, you could trade a stock and we could just both decide tomorrow that it's you know, worth 120 rather than 100. Yep. It's not like you have to push it by buying or pull it down by selling. Yeah, no, that's fair. It's interesting. And then it is kind of that classic stock market. It's got this classic stock market rally conditions. So you've got stimulus, you've got a massive change in direction from the US central bank. Uh, the stimulus is more from the Chinese. So it's over 5% of GDP. And that's roughly the same size that turned everything around in early 2016 when everything looked like it was going to go down. 5% was enough to turn all those PMIs and all those leading indicators positive. And, of course, China is substantially bigger in 2019 as it is in 2016. Yep. So the absolute magnitude was bigger as well. If you combine that with the fact that everyone had you know, massively pulled a lot, a lot of money out, moved to cash, cut exposures, and cut their gross, cut their net, you can see that you know, that is what causes a rally. You know? yeah. They're the best conditions. Uh, I really think that was that was the liquidation event for now. And it will take an actual recession. And, you know, there's major indicators of GDP and employment to really turn negative to um, cause another spiral like that. And I think that's, you know, that's not necessarily a consensus view. I think, you know, people are sort of sceptical about the China stimulus or about a trade deal happening, you know, and nervous about this rally turning around and yeah. going the other direction. How do you think about that? I think it's probably good when you're out of consensus in these things. You definitely want to be thinking long when everybody's thinking short and vice versa. You know, you have to respect the fact that things are considerably weaker now and that's just another, you know, the rally, not the rally, the, you know, the period between recessions has been pushed out. That's right. So, you know, every week that passes, cycle. we do actually yeah. get closer to the next recession, whenever that is. Yeah. So you have to respect that. And we are getting closer. Just, you know, it's just the nature of Cycles, things. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's, there's an old school theory that if... um. Whoever, whichever economy has the, the reserve currency, they have the longest cycle. Um, there's booms and busts on the outside. So what happens is, you know, the reserve, 
the reserve country, the reserve currency kind of appreciates and that causes all problems around the world. And then the central bank then has to act more easier than they would yep. uh, if they're just worrying about themselves. And that actually extends the boom. And that's kind of, again, textbook for what happened in 2018. There's actually a really old macro book. I can't remember what it was, but it basically it kind of foretold pretty much everything that happened in 2018 from, you know, the currency appreciation, the tightening, the effect that would have on emerging economies, the subsequent like easing in the reserve currency, and then the fact that that would extend the boom. Yeah. And that does seem to be what's happened. I know, you know, the Ray Dalio's uh, Big Debt Crises also covers. That ah, yeah. I don't read Ray Dalio's books. <laughs> this is the guy that actually made money last year after telling everybody to hold, that, that holding cash was stupid. So at some point in the middle of the year, for all of his tweeting and prognosticating, he completely reversed course without telling anybody, you know. Nobody wants to hear his like random views on principles. They want to know if he's long or short. And he told everybody he was long and then he went short and didn't yeah. tell anybody. It's yeah. ridiculous. No, it's, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. No, look, it's, it's But also, a, he's it's a bit of a, a, yeah, anyway, let's yeah. not talk about Ray Dalio. <laughs> or I'll get into trouble. <laughs> who else? Who else? I guess uh, Warren Buffett, who's obviously, you know, the most successful. I don't want to imply any lack of respect for the man. But I guess his deal, his latest deal blew up. And that was almost something that wasn't completely unpredictable. You know, it was craft. So they partnered up with a private equity group, bid for a company, almost certainly overpaid, and then slashed costs, and then effectively gutted the company. And now the growth isn't happening that they expected. You know, that was an interesting one to see him, you know, dabble in. That's typical of Buffett. Like he's dabbled in all kinds of things from like complex derivatives. You know, he's, he sold puts on the S&P 500, you know, just before the financial crisis. You know, he does a lot of edgy derivative stuff. Yeah, interesting. I, I, I don't think that's commonly Well, known. I think it's, I'm not suggesting his heart's not in the right place. I mean, what is the correct advice for everybody? It's, you know, it's buy the S&P 500 index. Yeah. Uh, if you do buy a company, buy like a famous company that everybody knows as cheaply as possible and then don't sell it, don't incur those transaction costs. Like, I'm sure like that's the reason he's telling everybody that that's what they should do is because that's what, Pretty much everybody should do. Yeah. But it's not what he's done. It's no. not necessarily. You know, he bought Salomon Brothers and got involved directly in their merger arb decisions and things like that. Yeah. Definitely interesting cat. I guess one thing he stayed away from was technology, though, right? Apart from Apple. I think that's an interesting one in, in and of itself. So in the new year, some of the biggest movers has, have been the tech sort of, or the tech space generally. How are you kind of seeing that play out? We basically held on to most of our tech um, and actually added. So in the sell-off, we added Google 10 times forward EBITDA and Amazon 15 times like in December. I guess the most controversial one we've actually held is Apple. Uh, so there's probably many reasons to sell that stock. Uh, we think the combination of the free cash flow, the long-term opportunity, and basically the valuation means it's still a good hold. So if you think about it, they're making you know, roughly $60 billion of free cash flow yeah, if you add their cash in, you can literally buy back a third of their market cap over the next kind of 12 to 18 months. Valuation is really compressed to about 8.8 .8 times forward. Uh, so it's definitely, it's a little bit off the lows, but it's still very low for a company. They've got over a billion, almost one and a half billion of iPhones as their installed base. People kind of underplay their services or kind of imply that they're trying to talk up services because it's the only part of their business that's doing very well. Yep. But think about the long-term opportunity for payments, for app purchases, all the things that go through that in kind of the wealthiest segment of the smartphone population. And that's kind of the opportunity for Apple. 
Uh, and again, it's just something we've held for a very long time. So it, I really don't think it makes sense when you have a very good entry price for something, it's gone very well, for then to kind of compress in valuation by 30, 40%. It's just the wrong time to sell it while those things are intact. They do have 60% of their revenue on the iPhone. So really the reason we kind of had it over the last year was because in anticipation of the 5G upgrade cycle. Yeah. Uh, and that probably didn't happen. So yeah. in my view, that's basically what happened. So everyone was expecting a massive up- upgrade cycle. We got in ahead of that. But then it was kind of disappointing that it was pushed out so far. Yeah, I think Amazon's an interesting one as well. I mean, we were in Alibaba for quite a while. So yeah. we got a very good enterprise to that. And I guess the Alibaba and Amazon always compared, but they're so different. So Alibaba's core business, you know, makes 40% margins, effectively doing what looks on the surface like Amazon is. Now, Amazon has negative margins in everywhere apart from the US for their yeah. core e-commerce business. So what's like the difference? basically the advertising. So Alibaba lets you pay money to advertise. So it's kind of effectively, you know, it's just, it's, just a, it's just a fantastic business. It costs them nothing to display an extra few ads. It's completely targeted. Yep. People type in what they want to see and then you get displayed an ad that somebody has that paid thing, for. Yeah. And naturally, the most successful company that's selling the most stuff will be able to afford the most. The others won't be able to afford it. So really, you know, these advertising businesses, we've talked about this before, they're yeah. just so good. You know, they just capture the best the first bit of margin of the best online businesses everywhere. Yep. That's Google, Facebook, Alibaba. The relevance here is Amazon is just starting that business now and just rolling it out. So you think about the incredible delayed gratification to resist kind of adding that. Yeah, the whole way up. through. No, the whole exactly way through. Right. Yeah. Now they're so dominant in the US, they can start adding that. You know, that could be a huge, extremely high margin business for them. Yeah, it's one of those tired factoids, isn't it, that you know, some ridiculous percentage of US e-commerce searches start on Amazon. So you add that into a, it's a captive advertising market that you're, you're sort of playing into not even touching on the value of AWS. And then you've yeah. got, they've just sort of managed to so consistently create new sources of value. It's, it's a pretty remarkable business. It's interesting one. Uh, and I guess, yeah, if you, could, you could also look at Amazon as one of the best cloud players software as a service. I mean, that, that's an interesting sector in its own right. I mean, these are in many ways the best companies in the world. I think you, you could say you yeah. know, things like Atlassian, you know, Shopify, Wix, companies that are just purely online, very high margin. Zero. Zero, yeah. yeah. But those things have run up in multiple insanely, you know, kind of from their lows in 2016. Then Shopify was trading at six and it's kind of peaked at three times that. So, yeah. And it's grown very strongly over the period. So all these software as a service businesses have grown substantially and their multiples have expanded. You know, they got sold off very hard in the last few months yeah. and almost to a name have bounced back to their previous highs and more. Whereas kind of the, the, the larger tech companies haven't done that. Yeah. So Amazon, Facebook, Google, they're all still well below their still lows. Still below the highs, yeah. I think, uh, I guess it's pretty hard to, it's pretty hard to invest in those now. I mean, you just can't do it at these valuations. That's my view. I mean, we've got a list of ones you'd love to buy. But paying 12 times sales for something growing at 30% doesn't really seem to make sense. I think it's different if the growth rates are actually materially higher. And I guess one of the other like, extremely likely scenarios is the, most of these SaaS businesses continue to perform quite well, but their, their valuations slowly compress over time. So it doesn't necessarily need to be kind of some big crash where they go from 24 to 6x. Because they are growing you know, every three months that they don't. Every three months, you know, the sales part of their multiple and the earnings side of the multiple improves. Yeah. But it does affect your return significantly. If you hold these things for five years and the multiple compressors from 24 to five, that is going to affect your returns 
ideally you want to buy these the same amazing company at six and catch yeah. the expansion to 24. Yeah. But I guess that's not really on the cards for most of these companies now. Certainly not the famous ones. No, exactly. The values sort of markets discovered it, right? So. Yeah. So what's your view on the markets at the moment, Mario? What do you think? Uh, <laughs> turning this around. I think we're, we're at this, you know, we, we were chatting about this earlier. This, you know, is, it, is the, the ideal time to be investing is, is when central banks are focused on stimulating their minds, are nervous about a slowing economy and fundamentals are still ticking ever slowly outwards you know we're not we're not like you say we're not yet in a position where unemployment is skyrocketing and and we're in that sort of vicious cycle things are still okay they're softening but all all the the, well, the two big banks that we sort of focus on chinese and the and the us are sort of in the in the us case are, are certainly becoming more dovish and in china are actively starting to stimulate so the the chance for sort of prolonging this cycle longer than we would otherwise than than might otherwise have occurred naturally if the, if the banks were more neutral it's pretty high i think you know that is obviously offset by a healthier respect for for you know how long this cycle has gone on and whether or not employment you know if, if employment turns and things things start to look quite different i don't know if you ever so one of the things we've been looking at is government bonds so most people would be aware that when things go wrong in an economy, central banks cut rates. Uh, what that effectively means is, you know, short-term rates rally and long-term rates generally rally too. The advantage of that is that, you know, obviously at times when your stock's going down, that's like one massive market that tends to rally quite hard. So it can, you can definitely construct very effective portfolios with bonds and stocks. And we don't do that as a general rule of thumb. You know, we're equity managers. We kind of expect most people to do that themselves and like place the kind of you know, high return equity risk with risk. us, so to speak. Yep. But if there was ever a time to kind of increase your exposure, it'd be times like this, where it does seem to be, think, it does look like things are rolling over. It's quite likely that something happens in the next few years, just as a matter of timing. And also rates are relatively high at the moment in the US. They're certainly high relative to everywhere else. So it seems like there's a long way to go down. And if you add in the fact that quantitative easing is more or less the government literally buying bonds in enormous size, yep. you can see that... I guess one of the things that I've always thought is if you have a bearish view, the best way to express it is not in the equity market. I mean, equity market's a horrible place to be. As we've just seen, they can be short, you know, six weeks later, markets can rally 25%. Uh, and individual stocks can rally 50 to 100%. That happens all the time. So to actually make money shorting equities, and it's one of the things we actually did manage to do last year successfully, you really have to kind of get your timing bang on. And you'd probably argue that it's not possible to do that consistently over a 40-year period. What it is possible to do is to hold bonds consistently over a 40-year period and to effectively allocate between the two. So this is probably a very good time to be kind of increasing your allocation to bonds in anticipation of a time when you can actually get more kind of aggressive on the equity side. You know, so it's, it's, it's defensive, but it's defensive, so it could be more offensive later. Yeah. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think, uh, yeah, I tend to agree. I think the, the interesting thing that I've kind of, has popped up in a few conversations I've been having recently is this idea that sure the US is high but rates are at an all-time low how much can banks really ease anyway which I think you know I is probably not yeah. the best way to look at things I'd say banks can ease a lot yeah look at the euro what happened to euro bonds I mean if you were bearish bearish European equities has worked at certain times in the last four or five years yeah but the best trade was and, and short credit did not work. I mean, credit spreads tightened, even though there was all this kind of slowness and 
you know, Malay in, in, in the EU. The one thing that did work was buying bonds because, you know, rates turn negative across huge parts of that economy. Uh, so if things go wrong in the US, there's a good chance that, you know, that's 250 basis points. I think it's 260, 270 basis points at the moment. It's a long way down. That's like on a 10-year bond, you know, 8 or 9% for every 1% move. But I, I mean, you know, and you can materially reduce people's funding costs, 25 basis points on a, you know, the Fed goes out and says we're pushing rates down 25 basis points and that that's a 10% drop in people's funding costs and that sort of thing materially moves, you know, stimulates the economy. So yeah, yeah. The other interesting thing, which might actually make sense of this whole like SAS rally that's caught everyone by surprise, I guess the companies that benefit most are the ones that, you know, have most of their profits in the future. So as rates come down, it's probably as... As kind of that rate environment changed, it's probably not so surprising that SAS firstly got sold off the most and secondly rebounded the hardest, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Because no. most of those, you know, they can be mature companies in 10 years. Yeah. So a small change in a discount rate makes a huge difference to those companies. Absolutely. It remains to be seen how many of those, the people who are buying those rallies are doing a 10-year DCF, but I uh, certainly yeah. know. It remains to be seen what the 10-year returns are as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. A lot of those businesses are now a lot older than you then you realize, uh, I mean, have, have been around for now 10 plus years. Amazon's or list, been listed 20. They're not so much the new kids on the block anymore. This. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's still surprising how many businesses there are. They're only a few years old. But did, you, did you see that, this is total random side, but did you see that graph that sort of a gif that was going around the internet on top 10 stocks on the S&P and how they've been changing my market cap and the, the shuffle that's happened over the last 10 years. Uh, I haven't, but I imagine it's shifted from yeah, what was it originally? Like no, it was 30, no, it was 30 years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, st- I still vividly remember you know, a, a lesson in high school, in the beginning of high school, was what's the most valuable company in the world? And it was Exxon, what was it? Yeah, Exxon at the time. Exxon? Yeah, that's right. Mm. Yeah, so, and, and yeah, there was, and then it was Chevron and there's just a bunch of oil companies. I mean, a uh, long way from that now. One thing I found interesting was to think of... Um, Facebook almost like a tobacco stock, where it's like wildly acknowledged yeah, okay. cause farm harm. But everyone knew that about tobacco for decades, many decades. Yeah. And now for many years, like extremely high performance. That's interesting. It stopped actually. They haven't done very well since. The tobacco companies? Yeah. Just recently, I feel like valuations have come off. Yeah. But they were, I mean, they, they, they were, they were, yeah, the they were performing you know, 100 years yeah. straight line up twice the market or whatever it was. Yeah. So I guess as some people would say that Facebook is something like that at the moment. It's like deeply hated, but potential to actually make a lot of money yeah although yeah i think you know i mean you're, what do you have your views shifted over the last few months on facebook yeah i i think i was i've always been relatively bearish on the core product facebook mm-hmm. proper universally here that use it that uses sort of dropping or the amount of use the how much people are using is, is dropping and i think the saving grace has been instagram and and whatsapp but increasingly what i'm seeing is that I think I've underappreciated how valuable Instagram and WhatsApp are as just a source of the beginning of a commerce journey, kind of touching on what we were speaking about with Amazon before, you know, where do people start looking for something and then how valuable is that to the, the advertiser and the, and the, um, or the, the producer and the brand? Um, yeah, I, I don't know. It used to be that I didn't know a, a woman who didn't find inspiration on Instagram now, you know, both men and women that I know start shopping on, on Instagram. Yeah, shop and, directly. Yeah. And it's just such a good Str- channel to do, through. right? I mean, yeah. it's just you see something that you like and it's just right there. Yeah, it's someone cool is wearing it who's, you know, on holiday. Advertising, yeah. And, yeah it's, it's much better than, say, a billboard or something because you can just click the ad and go straight through to the shop. Yeah. 
and you, you click through the ad that, that, and, you know, that if they, they continue to sort of compress that commerce sequence so that mm. it's less and less, less effort for you, yeah. you know, I mean. But they don't break out platform. very much about that, do they? No. And I think that's, that, that, that for me has been quite frustrating about their reporting. You know, um, you can see ARPU's going up, you see revenue going up, you see users going up and you have no understanding of mm. how that's split across there. So in the US, for an example, the shift over the last year, they went from $27 per user to $35 with roughly flat to negative user growth, but basically zero, like flat. Yeah. Um, the rest of the world's about seven. So we think there's probably still upside there from the ARPU. But I guess a lot of that must be coming from um, Instagram now. Yeah, I'm sorry. For, yeah, ARPU's being average revenue per user. So. Fun to follow. Should we leave it that? Yeah, absolutely. Good to chat. Great to chat. And that wraps up episode five. If you'd like to find out more about us, please check out our website, www.frazzascapitalpartners.com or you can find me on Twitter at Michael Frazzis. And if you enjoyed that, please leave us a rating on iTunes and share with your friends. Hope you have a fantastic week.